Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and uh, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God again. I was hoping to be done with a particular uh, section of uh, a uh, article I've been writing. I don't know, it's actually a chapter probably in uh, an upcoming book. But uh, I, I've been kind of waiting and praying about a particular revelation to take it to, to fill in the gaps, to take it to another level. And finally, that came to me yesterday, and I realized uh, where the problem is, and it took me down a whole new path uh, where I'm going to have to lay this out piece by piece so that everybody can see it. it it's it's uh, another one of those deals that's going to get me burned at the stake, <laughs> but, uh, like the uh, golden calf and the red heifer. You know, when you explain to people that the golden calf was actually a central bank, it was a form of depositing uh, the funds of the people into uh, a central bank where it was under the control of a priest group. Uh, you have to remember that, it, well, remember, most of you don't even know that uh, in Egypt, the uh, temple were banks. They were uh, depositories of wealth, and in that particular time, wealth in Egypt was grain because it had these large granaries where it could store grain. That was the the central commodity that they traded abroad because, you know, they had this dry climate and were able to uh, uh, provide uh, huge amounts of grain uh, all over the world and going way, even way back then, but... Uh, Certainly at the time of the Roman Empire, they were importing vast amounts, you know, 400,000 bushels like a day from uh, Egypt of grain into, that's where they were able to provide the free bread of Rome, was they had all this cheap grain that they could get in tr as a trade commodity from Egypt, because they were still able to do it because of the the warm climate and the uh, irrigation off of the Nile River through their aqueduct systems. If you go back into ancient history, you can find the same thing in the Indus Valley, uh, where they mastered this uh, ability to move water around and to, to irrigate. And they did this by huge work projects to build the aqueducts and the uh, uh, canals necessary to move that water around so that they could get this guaranteed flow of crop. They created a cash crop. You can't have a cash crop of cabbage and lettuce and leeks and onions that is going to be sold abroad because it will spoil before it gets to Rome. But grain, that was another thing. So anyway, understanding that the, the, the temples were banks and then understanding that the Temple of Ephesus was a world bank, which are articles that we have and we show that they were minting coins, that they were investing in fisheries and in and in uh, transportation of goods by ship all over the Mediterranean. They actually moved the temple several times because the rivers were silting in and they had to move the temple where it was more convenient. And then finally it burned down and then they decided to build it out of stone and then along comes 
the apostles who are accused of robbing this international bank built by 127 different countries. If you don't understand that history, you you aren't going to understand what the Bible is really talking about. You're, you're just going to miss it. Now, you you might be really inspired by the Holy Spirit, but then you're going to start putting these things together because they've been playing fast and loose with translations. Not so much the Greek, although we definitely show that you know, you can take Greek words, they translate 20 different ways, or five different Greek words, they translate the exact same way. Bit by bit, it's going to lend itself to channeling your doctrines and your dogmas in particular directions, and you're going to miss the whole thing, because you don't understand history. So, you know, that's why we went and wrote the article on red heifers. Red heifer had nothing to do with a red cow, or, you know, a springing cow, a springing heifer. It had nothing to do with that. Yet, here we have today, Jews all over the world, and even Christians, waiting with bated breath to find that perfect red cow with not, not a single hair out of place that they can sacrifice by killing and 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 passing, uh, you know, returning to the sacrifice of the temple. problem is, the sacrifice of the temple, and, well, the red heifer wasn't even sacrificed in the temple. It wasn't even sacrificed in town. It was... The red heifer, just to break it down to simple basic terms, is referencing through metaphor and idiom for an aid. That's all the red heifer was. It wasn't a cow, it wasn't red, it wasn't, had its throat slit and set on fire. It was about foreign aid to the neighbors around about you. And so if that's, and, and the altars were not about piling up rocks and burning up sheep, what were they doing? And, uh, what was the, what was the scapegoat, which is what I've been kind of working on. Why, why did they have this scapegoat? And, uh, wh- where did this whole idea come from? Because, uh, it's only mentioned a couple of little places in the Bible. We don't really see anywhere where they're actually doing this supposed ritual. And it came about because of Aaron's son, uh, Nadab and Abihu used strange fire in a sacrifice. And they were, ended up, they died mysteriously. And uh, so then, the, in order to to carry that out and fix this problem, Aaron was going to sacrifice this goat and then get another goat that they drive out into the wilderness. And then that goat, dies somewhere out in the wilderness with all the sins of the people and all very confusing, very bizarre. And I'm sure the goat was not going to be cooperating. If you, if you, if you live anywhere where there's kind of an oasis of green grass and what have you, and you try to drive a goat out into the desert, you can take him a long ways out. He's going to be back the next day (laughs) as you tie him up. And then kill them out there or something. What what was that really all about? And then how was it fixed by this sacrifice and this grinding the incense into fine particles? And what were the censers? And what was the incense? Well, the fact is, you know, we'll go into this in greater detail. But the word goat in Hebrew is also the word strength. And the word incense is also the word for join together 
And if you're grinding the incense into fine little particles, then you're not joining together. You're separating. And so, what's that all about? And what was a censer? What's another word? What is the other translation of the Hebrew word censer? What else does it mean besides a censer that you're going to put this grind ground stuff in? And if the altars of stone were not piles of rock and the burnt offerings was not setting sheep on fire, what is strange fire? What was that going on? Well, we'll have to address all that in a future show because I'm not ready to explain all that yet. It's, it's, uh, it goes into great depth, uh, into the strong delusion that we now have formed as Christ, modern Christianity. Because if they were doing that back then, if they were doing something different back then, and God is the same today as he was yesterday, and, uh, what is right and what is wrong is the same today as it was yesterday. And we're probably the same today as we were yesterday. What what was really going on? What was all this stuff really all about? What was this strange fire? So anyway, the red heifer was not a red cow. It was foreign aid. And if you don't believe that, go read the article and find out where we're wrong and bring back a reasonable argument where we're incorrect. Don't just tell me, well, that's not what everybody told me, because that isn't enough. <laughs> that's not going to convince me, because somebody told you something. You lack knowledge. We're sharing knowledge with you. And if the golden calf was a a uh, one purse, again, there's another thing in Proverbs. They talk about having one purse, consent not. Uh, and why do you have one purse to get some sort of gain? Well, we are going to talk about some of that today, because what we're really going to talk about is, uh, well, I guess if we want to put it down into a single word, we're going to talk about libertarianism, So, and, and what it is and what it's not. It's defined as, uh, you know, it's from the word libertas, uh, which supposedly means freedom in Latin. If you were to translate that directly into Greek, you'd probably use the word eleutheria. There's a... Another word, exousia, that uh, we see in Romans 13 is also translated liberty and was considered to, to be absolute liberty by Aristotle and uh, was replacing the already defunct word uh, eleutheria, which is what we see in the Greek also as liberty. So these two words both mean that. And the second one, is found in Romans 13. And so if and we've we've gone through this, we have uh articles up on it, we have recordings on it that if if that word meant liberty and it is even translated liberty in the Bible, when we read it in Romans 13, it is let every man remain subject to the higher liberty because all liberty is of God and there is no liberty but of God and anyone who opposes liberty opposes God. Now, the translators hired by King James aren't going to translate it that way. <laughs> They're just not going to do it. Uh, it doesn't mean the government authority. Uh, absolutely nowhere. Most of the time you see it in the Bible, it's, it, it's Christ referencing his position of, of, uh, power. And it means it's defined. 
in the Strong's Concordance is the power to choose. That's what power it is. It's not the power of government. It's the power to choose. Well, the power to choose was in your hands originally. In the natural state, as free souls under God, the power to choose is you, is, is within you. Now, you can get to choose to do what God wants you to do, or you can just choose to do whatever you want to do, and uh, you are free to do so. But one will, if you go against whatever this heuristic thing is we call God, if you go against the character of God, you will pay the price according to the law of nature because we live in a cause and effect universe. If you go a certain way uh, in your libertarianism, and there's a lot of different ways to go in libertarianism, you will find yourself eventually between a rock and a hard place. And so... We're trying to encourage you to make the right choice, but we are absolutely happy to allow you to make that choice. So you have to figure out what choice that would be and how that choice would work. So again, libertarianism is is defined by some as a collection of political philosophies and movements that uphold liberty as the core principle. Libertarians seek to maximize political freedom and autonomy, emphasizing freedom of choice, voluntary association, and individual judgment. The interesting thing is that when you talk about these, uh, a collection of political philosophies and movements, some of these are really quite contrary to liberty whatsoever and choice. And they actually bring you into greater and greater bondage. Uh, they're, they're, they're promising you liberty, but they themselves are workers of iniquity. And, you know, so anyway, if, if you who, who don't know, I'm, I'm quoting the Bible. <laughs> they promise you liberty, but they deliver you into corruption. Uh, so, uh, who is that and what what is that all about and how does that work that's what we're going to be exploring a little bit uh, i i saw briefly and i thought i would quote from it uh, a little bit uh, except for i don't have i didn't save the quote so i i'll have to do it from memory but uh, somebody was out interviewing young people about socialism and whether socialism was or good it was glenn beck or somebody uh, it wasn't glenn beck doing it some some reporter that works for Glenn Beck. And the answers were, it was just painful to, to listen to these, uh, answers that these, these guys were, uh, coming up with. Cause they have, they have no knowledge of history. I actually am going to sit down and, uh, have dinner, I think next week with a principal, uh, who was a principal for years of schools. And I've, I've had these, and he still wants to talk to me more. Where I said, no, schools are terrible. They're absolutely horrendous. They're horrible. The education they've been imparting has been destructive because the kids are coming out of high school and going into college with no knowledge of history. No knowledge of what works and what did not work in history and why they didn't work. They've been re- literally dumbed down. A sixth grader had a better education than most high, you know, back in the 20s, had a better education than most high school students do today. 
certainly an eighth grader. I mean, you couldn't pass, most kids coming out of high school today couldn't pass eighth grade exam from the 20s and 30s. Uh, they don't have the same math skills. Uh, they have a bunch of information in their head uh, and arrogance uh, sometimes, but they really are are really dumbed down, don't understand work ethic. It's it's really a mess. Now, there are kids who are actually doing really well. I mean, I have a grandson who actually attends public school, very tiny, tiny little public school. I mean, has graduation classes of like seven. And uh, he's already doing work way beyond his grade and, is, and wanted to skip the next grade. And so they made him give a dissertation as to why he wanted to skip that grade to a principal. And uh, I guess they're probably going to let him do it. But so he's, but he's just bored, bored senseless in, in school because it's all about dumbing your kids down and making you think that they're really, really smart. And they end up coming out of high school not understanding anything about history. So anyway, uh, back to uh, this libertarianism. And we're going to be touching on different points of history as we look through this. And the way in which certain people approach the, the present is very dependent on our understanding of the past. And... That's why, you know, it tells you to train up your sons and so that they know uh, their heritage and their past and what worked and what didn't work and how that we went wrong in different societies when we tried different things. And once you understand that, when people come up with ideas like having one person, socialism, you don't have to point to Venezuela. You just know it's wrong. You know, and... Uh, I had a conversation with somebody on uh, Facebook last night, and we may get to that as well and look at, uh, you know, what people are missing. You know, and it's really very, I actually had somebody call me earlier this morning, I think they called from Illinois, uh, and uh, somebody had handed them a document that we wrote years ago, and they were fascinated and they wanted to uh, learn more, and he brought up certain things uh from he he wanted to know a, a little bit about us that wasn't covered in that document and he was pleased to find out my answers to it but he hasn't even really scratched the surface of what people don't know because we do lack knowledge so anyway second peter says in 219 while they promise them liberty they themselves are the servants of corruption for of whom man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. So you have to be very careful when people are talking about libertarianism. And uh, because they're promising you liberty, they're talking about liberty. But the same can be said of socialism, because socialism promises you, democratic socialism too, promises you from liberty from want. Liberty from fear, liberty from anxiety uh, about where your next meal is coming from. Because you're going to all have one purse and you're going to have gain. If we read the verse before that, which is verse 18, or maybe we can go all the way to 17. These are wells without water, clouds uh, that are carried with tempests. Uh, to whom 
the mist of darkness is reserved forever. They're, they're going to be blind. They're not going to see. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those who were clean escape from them who lived in error. Now, it's, it's Peter who forecasted or pro- prophesied that we would become merchandise, human resources, that we, we would be entangled again in this yoke of bondage, that we would even curse our children, curse them with debt, which, all of which is taking place today. Yeah, and, uh, which takes me back to the Facebook post, which was dealing with Matt, Matt Whitman, who has the 10 minute Bible hour, and he has a lot of things. Uh, and I listened to a YouTube that he was presenting on Romans 13, and by seven minutes into his 10 minute Bible hour, uh, he was talking about the church and correlating the Constantine church as if it was the church, but it was going down these other paths. But that's not the church. Once you depart from the ways of Christ, you're not the church anymore. You can call yourself a church, but that's not the church. That's something posing as a church. You know, you you can dress up as uh, the president. That don't make you the president. Uh, you can imitate his voice. That don't make you the president. Or, you know, you can dress up like Christ. That don't make you Christ. And so you can dress up as the church, but that don't make you the church. And so he doesn't really get what the church is. I mean, he's a nice guy, and he has a lot of good ideas, and he's not far off in some ways from the kingdom. But the fact is, is you know, if you're going to be, you know, a, a, a navigator out at sea, and you don't take into account the current, uh, you're going to be off course. You got to know the current. You got to know the wind. You got to know your speeds and knots, and when you cross different curves and ebbs and flows, or you're not going to end up where you need to be. And what you need to be more than anything else is following the Holy Spirit. And I, the problem is, is that we have this tendency to try to create a series of rules and regulations and patterns of behavior, and everybody's supposed to fit into that. And uh, we, in order to identify those things, we put labels on, you know, like this is a church. And if you go here and you read the Bible and you do these, this, 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 and this, you're a Christian. But you're not. But we'll find out what a real Christian is when we come back. Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. The word free appears, you know, well, actually about 50 sometimes in the Bible, but then forms of free, like freedom and liberty, uh, it's hundreds of times that it appears in the Bible. In the New Testament, many times you find it in Corinthians and Galatians and Romans. And uh, it talks about, for when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. <laughs> well, that's not the freedom you want, is to be free from righteousness. Uh, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Well, that's what you want to be. And if you're not servants of righteousness, not servants of men, but servants of righteousness, you will not remain free. 
so anyway, that's why we we're going to take a look at libertarianism because libertarianism is supposed to be about freedom, right? As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as a servant of God. So that's again going back to Peter saying things like that. So this this idea of uh, freedom is is core, but yet we see neither Jew, a Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, that's that's another important idea that your freedom isn't dependent upon a particular state or status or place that you are in the world. I mean, you could be born into bondage. You could be born into debt, or you could go into debt, and if you're in debt, you're not free anymore. You're a bondsman. You are now bonded to fulfill the, the, the debt. You took something from somebody, and now you owe them money back, because you agreed to take that something. So you're not free. So debt is a form of bondage. And you're, you must pay your debt. I mean, that's the law of nature. And this is the cause and effect universe that you, you're in. And if you think you can get away with not paying your debt, well, guess what? Yeah, things are not going to work out in your favor in the long run. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Yet people are entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Which is, you know, Matt Whitman doesn't seem to even notice the fact that everybody in the world today are back in the bondage of Egypt. You know, they don't own their land, they don't own their labor, they don't own their children. They can take your children away and force vaccinate them and you don't have any say so in it. You can say, oh, that's an outlaw government. But the reality is that's not an outlaw government. That's the government you have created because you look to them to be your benefactor. And you think that, oh, well, I changed my mind, so I now, if you go borrow money and you, and you say, I'm going to pay you back, but then you go and spend all the money and now you can't pay them back, they got you. You, you owe them. They can now come and take what they want from you, you know, to get that debt paid back because you got their stuff. The stuff you bought, that belongs to them and they can come and take it. And that's fair. And people don't realize it, but you're hemming yourself into a spiritual bondage. This is why Christ said, the keys to the kingdom is what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. You create these covenants. Thou shalt make no covenants with them. You create these covenants. You apply for those benefits. You're a lover of the wages of unrighteousness. And so you're brought again into this yoke of bondage through your covet. Peter says it several places through covetous practices. Because you desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor, you went into bondage. So now you say you want to be a libertarian, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> and, uh, and you, 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 so anyway, like I said, I just gave you one definition of a libertarian, but it says that it's a collection of political philosophies and movements. So these movements aren't all the same. 
And so they're not all really about liberty. And so, I mean, you can look at the right libertarians uh, who developed in the United States around the mid-20th century uh, from the works of European writers such as John Locke or Frederick Hayek or Ludwig von Mises and uh, is some of the more popular concepts of libertarianism throughout the world today. It is commonly referred to as a continuation of uh, or a radicalization of classical liberalism, whatever classical liberalism is. And we have a page up that talks about some of these things. But left libertarianism encompasses those libertarian beliefs that claim the Earth's natural resources belong to everyone in a egalitarian manner, either unowned or owned collectively. Well, unowned, that's where everything is before man was put here. But then we were told to dress it and keep it. Well, the fact that we were told to keep it is suggesting that there was some sort of ownership when we were, man was put here, uh, or evolved here, whatever you want to think. Uh, but man was now here having this some sort of power of ownership. And it, it, now is that, so it doesn't remain unknown, but one of the uh, things that they share with us in the biblical text is that we were to dress it and keep it. We had to take care of it, that's dress it, and keep it. In other words, not lose a right to ownership. But what is ownership? I mean, there's degrees of ownership. And this, of course, where libertarian uh, left libertarians come in there. They believe that neither claiming nor mixing one's labor with the natural resource is enough to generate full private property rights. Absolutely. You generate, you don't generate full private property rights just because you invested some labor into something. So, you know, you take a field that's desert and, and you start to, uh, add humus to the soil and you go and you shovel manure and you get compost and and you put all this organic matter out and you start growing grasses and then you grow livestock and the livestock manures and you turn the blood back into the soil, mostly your sweat and blood, and now you have this fertile garden place and somebody else comes along and says, oh, this is a really good place to put my garden and I'm going to put it there and you don't have a property right. Well, that's ridiculous. You build up an orchard, you produce this fruit, you've watered, you trim the trees for years and years. Somebody comes along and says, well, you don't have any property, right? I can just take apples whenever I want because I have a need. Well, that's stealing. That's the definition of stealing. Because you're stealing that man's labor. Does he have an absolute private property right in the apples that he's growing? Obviously not. He didn't produce the sunlight. He didn't produce the rain. But he, there would be no apples there if it was not for him. So he has the right to control the distribution of those apples. And he has a property right in him. And you can't take one of those apples away without stealing some of his labor. You know, you, you're making him a slave ex post facto, after the fact. He's done all this work, slaved away at the orchard. You come along and you take the, the products of his labor without his permission you're you're certainly not a libertarian 
<laughs> this is one of the things that we'll see this at yeah, but this idea of maintaining these natural resources ought to be held in egalitarian manner. Well, ought to be. Yeah, how do you determine that? Especially as a collective. Somebody's going to be making the decision as to who gets the apples. Well, who is more, has more right to make that decision than the person who produced the apples? Well, there you go. Contemporary left libertarians such as Hillel Steiner, Peter Valentin, and a lot of David Elderman, others, they have a lot of different ideas on this. You can look them up individually, but they're really off track. Because as soon as you're talking collective, you're not talking liberty. Because now the collective is either going to democratically or unitarily decide what you get to keep, what you don't get to keep. The decision is not in your hands. You no longer have the right to choose the exousia. That has been taken away by the collective. You know, or somebody who claims to be egalitarian. So, uh, you know, it's a what, oxymoron, left libertarianism. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, uh, it's appealing to some people. Because they just close their mind to what actually is going to come about from this uh, whole idea. But uh, they believe in the appropriation of land must leave enough and as good for others to be taxed by society to compensate for the exclusionary effects of private property. What? So if you're taxing people in a society, that is not a free society. Absolutely just not a free society. And how can you tax a man on his land unless you have a vested interest in that land? You have some sort of ownership. And of course, if you go look up our articles on legal title, you can see that a legal title is not ownership. It's apparent ownership, but it's not ownership because it carries with it no beneficial interest. You don't have a right to what you produce on that land if you only have a legal title. Legal title is is a form of limited lawful title. Unlimited lawful title is it's your land. What you produce on it is yours. But how does that private property right extend to that land? And should it be universal where every piece of land in the world is bound up in that? And in relationship to the kingdom of heaven, were there lands held in common? Yes, absolutely. Was there private land where you had... You could not lose the land. It could not be taxed. Yes. They had a mix of both. What people try to do now is that every piece of land in the United States, supposedly, it's not actually the case, is owned by the state. And this is the way it is in most countries. And you live on that land by government grace. And they will grant you a legal title under restrictions, you don't own the land. Anything you have legal title to, anything that's being taxed, property tax, you don't own it. And it's it's absolutely clear. People don't like me to say that. They don't like to hear that. But the reality is you don't own that land because if you don't pay the taxes, they take the whole land away from you. And they may give you no compensation whatsoever for even though you only owe a few thousand dollars in taxes, they can take the whole thing away and give you nothing for it. That's not ownership. That's the result of a legal title. You don't know that because you all went to public school and you're not being taught the truth. You're being taught how to be slaves. And that's that's what you do in public school. Now, 
most of the people I know who are public school teachers, they're not going to, oh, that's ridiculous. But you, you tell me that you're not in the bondage of Egypt now, where they can take 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60% of your labor away from you. They can tax you on your land. They can tax you on uh, your children. They can tax you on everything. You're not free. You're maybe comfortable, but you're not free. So anyway, let's go back to uh, look at the difference between this right and left libertarianism. Because it's, it's very uh, interesting. We're going to tie all this together, but I have to give you some groundwork. Right libertarianism maintains that... Uh, Unowned natural resources may be appropriate by the first person who discovers them, mixes his labor with them, or merely claims them. Now, there's varying degrees of that. They're saying or, not and merely claims them. Without the consent of others and with little or no payment to them. So, in other words, if you, and this is actually the way it was, you know, like deer. They don't regulate hunting in, in, or actually they don't regulate the deer. The deer don't really belong to the queen. <laughs> like it did in the days of Robin Hood. The deer was wild and it belonged to whoever could catch the deer. But the queen could own the land upon which the deer foraged. He could own this, the queen could own the subject. If you were a subject of the queen, they may restrict your ability to hunt. And so now you can't just go shoot the deer. But in a natural state, if you hunted the deer, that was between you and the deer. And God, it, it wasn't between anybody else. And so going back to, if you just find you know, you find it, you you step over a mountain and you see a gigantic valley there and you say, I find the valley, it's now mine. <laughs> well, it doesn't quite work like that because there's varying degrees of private property. And there might be people there already. Uh, you certainly aren't occupying the entire valley. Uh, you certainly haven't put any labor in it. You're still sitting up on the mountain. So there's degrees of right that you have and uh, you have to be able to defend that right and if you're going to defend it alone that's okay you go and try to get other people with you to defend it that's i guess that's okay too but really what you want is god on your side and so you're to dress it and keep it you're not to keep it for exclusionary purposes because you have to love your fellow man as much as you love yourself and so you yeah you may claim that valley but you have to claim it for God and your fellow man, not with an exclusive right just for you and your own little kingdom. So anyway, uh, these uh, right libertarians, they believe that the natural resources are originally unowned and therefore our private parties may appropriate them at will without the consent or, you know, owing anyone else. But that process of appropriation, what is appropriate? And that's what we call property rights because it's proper. You 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 got you got into the valley and you started a little orchard over here in the corner. That orchard, you may have more property rights in that orchard. Now back to the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Jesus says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I'm going to appoint it to somebody else. He didn't say he was going to change the kingdom. He just says, I'm going to take it away from this group, the Pharisees who were a government, a civil government at the time. 
and going to appoint it to another group who would bear fruit. And that's what he did. The church was a government. It's a different form of government than you used to say. And if I say the word government, mostly what you're going to think of is the governments of the world. But there's another kind of government that is a libertarian kind of government where the rights of the individual are paramount. Uh, the the civil power is not in the hands of a of, of a short little central body. It's in the hands of every man, and that's a libertarian government. It's actually a pure republic, and that's what the church is. But the church is a division of two groups of people, and a lot of people aren't going to like this. But we'll we'll get into that and explain what we mean and what that division is. And we'll show you over and over and over again in the New Testament. They point this division out. People read it. We talked about it last week. They read it and they just miss it. You know, like the all things common. If you go read in Acts, uh, Acts 2, 44. You gotta read the verses on both sides of that. It's very clear that they're, the people are one group and the church is another group. But the church has a position. Now the problem is, same problem that Matt Whitman is having. He can't recognize the real church because he doesn't understand the wholeness of the gospel. Again, he's close in many ways, but he misses it. And he misses some very, and, and it's not surprising that he misses it because people what, lack knowledge. And he's a pretty smart guy. He knows a lot. And I think that if I sat down and debated this with him for a while, he might begin to catch on. Or he could go to our websites and read about it. And anybody can do this. But anyway, so you, you've got those uh, right libertarians uh, maintaining uh, the unowned natural resources. You can develop a property right in them. But again, like I said, in the kingdom you have a mix of both. But it, you also have a division of both. Then you have other uh, anarchist libertarians such as Emma Goldman. When, when you start getting into the word anarchist, which isn't doesn't mean no state. It means no ruler. But there is no such thing as no ruler. What they mean is no ruler over others. You have to be the ruler over yourself. And you have to have a natural discipline in yourself in order to make anarchy work. Because there, somebody has to be ruling over your actions. Nature will do it if you don't. You know, and she was... You know, she was a free love, feminist, uh, free thought, activist. But they even got into some of the people following Emma Goldman. I'm not going to say she did this, but got into the idea of chucking bombs at groups, you know, and violently overthrowing the state, etc., etc. Well, if you're out there breaking windows or chucking bombs or trying to overthrow the state or destroy the state, you're not a libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even an anarchist because throwing bombs and breaking windows, that's archy. That's exercising power over other people. You know, going in and, you know, you don't like his orchard, so you're going to cut down the trees and burn them. Well, that's not anarchy. That's you being an anarchist. You're trying to exercise authority over his labor, what he has produced. You're breaking his window. That's not anarchy. Uh, and so people don't really understand that. We have a, a big page on, you know, Christ was an anarchist because the kingdom he appointed, he says, 
you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. So, even though he appointed them a kingdom, they weren't archists. They weren't rulers. They operate. There were no taxes. They didn't tax anybody's land in the kingdom of God. There were tithes, but those are free will offerings. And people were just supposed to come together. You know, they were to make the people sit down on tens, hundreds, and thousands. How do they do that? Do they, they get a bunch of handcuffs and chain you together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? No. They just say, if you don't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, you ain't getting no loaves and fishes. That's just it. You have to sit down in the hundreds and thousands, tens, hundreds, and thousands before you get the loaves and fishes. That was commanded by Christ. And Matt Winman doesn't even make mention of this. He doesn't seem to understand it. He's going around, you know, trying to, you know, misidentifying what the church is, thinking, oh, this, the Roman Catholic Church and the Constantine Church and, and the Protestant churches, that they're all churches. If they're not doing what Christ said, they're not the church. That's it. That's just it. You have to do what Christ said in order to be the church. And that's how you can tell who the church is and who the church is not. Because if they're not doing what Christ, by their works, you know, hey, that's not it. You better keep looking till you find it. <laughs> so, anyway. So, uh, many left, uh, libertarians are anarchists and believe the state inherently violates personal autonomy. No, it doesn't. If all the people who followed after Cain and created a city-state, that was their choice. They have every right to... It's not to violate their autonomy. They give it up willingly in order to get the the security of the state. You know, they they swear allegiance to Cain. You know, they... They pay into Cain's treasury and, you know, Nimrod's treasury so that he could be a mighty provider instead of the Lord. Yeah, so that's their choice. They have every right to do that. It's not necessarily a good idea, and there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible warning you against that, but you get to do that. So it's not inherently violates personal autonomy because people are willing to give up personal autonomy for privileges for the wages of unrighteousness even, or for the benefits, uh, the gifts, gratuities, and benefits of men who exercise authority. Anyway, the, the left libertarians uh, are, who are anarchists believe that the state is, violates its personal autonomy, and it doesn't, uh, because people willingly give up their personal autonomy in order to obtain the benefits of the state. And they have every right to do that, and Emma Gold men doesn't have any right to go around and stop people from doing that. They have every right to do that. And that's why Christ is out there preaching the king, gospel of the kingdom and is not talking about tearing down Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And the problem is a lot of people are, you know, that was a, another quote that came out today where people talk about uh, coming out of her, my people lest ye be partakers of their sins or come out of uh from amongst them and be separate, which is actually in Second Corinthians. Those people had already had their Pentecost. They didn't come out of the system. They were kicked out of the system. Anyone who got the baptism of Christ were kicked out of the system. They were already sitting down in the tens, hundreds, hundreds and thousands 
that's the way early Christianity was organized, you know, from the beginning. It's the way John the Baptist was organizing people. It's the way Christ organizes and commanded his apostles to organize the people. And it's what they were doing on Pentecost when thousands of families, 3,000 one day, 2,000 the next, were coming out of the system by getting the baptism of Christ. They were being cast out of the system set up by the Pharisees. And now they were had a daily ministration. They were rightly dividing the bread from house to house. They were practicing pure religion. And that's who Paul's talking to. And they had a place to come to. Right now, you haven't got that place. Because you haven't started doing what Christ said to do. You're not sitting down in those tens, hundreds, and thousands. You're not taking care of one another. You're still in bondage. So what does that mean? Well, we'll talk about that next on Keys of the Kingdom. So stay tuned. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So was Christ a libertarian? Well, of sorts, but which of those movements would Christ be considered a libertarian? <laughs> because they, they're really rather diverse, just like those people, like I said, were being interviewed by someone from Glenn Beck's group who were asking young people about socialism, and they're saying, yeah, socialism is good, capitalism is bad, and, and uh, you know, I've heard people say, you know, capitalism uh, is not found in nature, you know, and that's that's some... Evidently, that person doesn't know much about nature because ants uh, exercise capitalism in a way. Uh, Squirrels certainly uh, exercise individual capitalism. I mean, they're out there gathering nuts. Those are natural resources you're taking there. (laughs) And they put it in their little pile and they defend their little pile of nuts. Uh, That's capitalism. And so it's it's very natural. Capitalism is very natural. Now, socialism, well, yeah, you could say the ants, but one of the things about the ants is they're a bunch of compulsive workers. And we're even told to remember the ants if we find ourselves in bondage, you know, that because we've been sluggards. It's the the industriousness of the ants that we're supposed to remember, not not the the idea that the ants have one purse. Because one purse runs towards death and evil and wickedness. Because it it causes you to create a net which captures you. Go read our article on one purse. So back to, you know, when I was talking about uh, Acts 2. If you go to, uh, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation, which is what we see today, this untoward generation. The free bread and circuses of Rome are here today, and everybody's looking for them. And uh, they're, they're looking for benefactors who can exercise authority by taking away from their neighbor they're absolutely willing to live at the expense of others and uh, they just turn a blind eye to the fact that they're giving more and more power to individuals and individual groups which will corrupt those groups and they will end up taking and taking and taking and taking so in verse 41 he says and they that gladly received his word were baptized and we we saw earlier and John, that anybody who got the baptism of Christ or the apostles was going to be cast out of their welfare system in Judea. 
which was run through the synagogues, which were composed of groups of ten families. And so they were now going to be cast out of that system. They were not going to be able to get the aid through that system set up by the Pharisees, through the Corbin of the Pharisees. The Corbin of the Pharisees you paid in at your your synagogue, your ten group, and then those tens, hundreds, and thousands eventually fed this money up into what they called the treasury. The word Corbin is even translated treasury. It means sacrifice. Your sacrifices were given into that government to provide social welfare for the people. Uh, it always The altars were always created to provide social welfare. If you don't understand that, you don't understand Abraham, you don't understand what Moses was doing. And that's how they were binding the people together by a system of pure religion and social welfare through free will offerings. Unfortunately, at the time of Christ, the Pharisees were not dependent upon free will offerings. They actually had collectors out there pacing off your field saying, this is what you're going to owe. You're going to have to give in this, this number of fish, this number of grain, this number of branches from your cumin's plant and uh, that was making the word of God did not affect because it was no longer free will offerings they were forced offerings enforced by law if you do that if you have a society that does that you will not be free that's that's against basic libertarian principles unless of course you're the left libertarians who evidently want to be able to tax your land <laughs> so but no it doesn't work that way but it, that's what you've created. So anyway, that's what uh, the verse uh, 41 is talking about. Gladly received the word, were baptized, therefore kicked out of the other system. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And, uh, when it says souls there, we have to go into the original Greek, but it's actually probably 3,000 families is what they're talking about because families were unit. They weren't to a man and a woman. They were no more twain and their children were a part of that family unit. So that's one soul from a legal point of view. It's the corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments of personality held in this unit called the family. But anyway, in verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers. In other words, in the redistribution of wealth and the application for whatever you needed. And, you know, to take care of the widows and orphans. That's what the prayers and bread was, the breaking of bread was that redistribution was done through the apostles' teachings and fellowship. So this is the job of the church to redistribute that bread from house to house. They won't have any bread unless you're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, of thousands and donate something to them. Why tens? Because you have control. You don't elect some pope off somewhere who makes all these decisions for you. You elect a minister directly that you know, and you can see if he's doing a good job, and you tithe to him according to his service, the same as the rule was way back at the beginning. There's no automatic tithe. There was no guaranteed tithe. There was no, uh, you know, if all things were equal, there'd be an automatic tithe. 
But that was your decision because you tithed to them according to their service. Now, service, find somebody else to tithe to. So that's the way it worked. In verse 44, and it says, and, well, let's look at verse 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. They'll later talk to you about where that fear came from. But they realized that something was, this is another form of government. This is actually a civil form of government. Civil law is the law that men make for themselves. In the case of the kingdom, that's a day-to-day thing. Those thousands of people sitting down in those congregations of ten were deciding fact and law on a day-to-day basis. They were deciding individually what they were going to contribute to the government and what they were not going to contribute to the government. Who they were going to contribute to. Every day was election day. Every day you were deciding whether you were going to keep this minister or pick another minister. He wasn't there to tickle your ears. He was there to practice in the practice of pure religion. So now in 44, and it says, And all that believed were together and had all things common. And we see this in two places and we have a whole article upon it. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. That wasn't everybody. That was the church. Only the church, the ministers of Christ, were to sell their possessions. Christ was very specific. And again, we have articles that show you where he says this. It's right in the text. It's not hidden, although it's poorly translated into many books. You just look at the original Greek and you say, oh, Yeah, he's saying you have to sell your possessions because that's the word he uses. That's the Greek word we see there. Just because they don't translate it position, they say sell all you have. You see the word have there, but I'm not making it up. It's right there in the concordances, standard concordances. You can look it up yourself. And they continued daily in one accord. Who was in one accord? It was those that were in the church, the 120 in the upper room, were in one accord in the temple, in the government temple. Breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness. What did John the Baptist say? To share. You have two coats. Your neighbor has none. Share. Do the same in meats. This is what they were doing. They were doing it in meats. They were sharing. They knew who. they. Everybody couldn't go around to every house every day. So you had certain ministers who were in charge to make sure that nobody fell through the cracks. And that all the widows and orphans and really needy were taken care of, and and you were also looking for the deadbeats who didn't want to work and just eat other people's bread. And you say, if you don't work, you you don't eat. And uh, if you found ministers, you know, facilitating or weakening the poor, you would say, I'm not I'm not going to give to you unless you're strengthening the poor, and and helping people get off of welfare. And if you're not going to do that, I'm going to find another minister who's going to do it. that's your responsibility in the kingdom of libertarianism. If you don't do that, things will all break down. You'll be all on your own. You'll be a scattered flock and the coyotes will come in and eat you up one at a time. So anyway, they continue daily in one accord in the temple. Again, that's that government building doing this. Now, verse 47. We talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, wait a minute. Who's having favor with all the people? The church. Those men who sold their possessions and own all things in common. And see, this is where that mix is. 
You go back to the Levites. The Levites had no inheritance in the land, yet there was Levite land. They owned that land in common. If one Levite sold that land, another Levite could come back and redeem it. Now, somewhere, uh, several hundred years before, someone made the rule that Levites could own land in their own personal name. And, of course, we get into that, that later we see when they talk about Barnabas, who was Hoses, sold land, and laid the money at the foot of the apostles. He was getting right with the Lord. He was going back to the way the Levites were before. Now, this, your your modern Protestant ministers aren't going to like this. That they have to own, they have to be a a group that owns all things in common. Why? So that the majority of the people can actually own their land. And they can own their families. And they can be free souls under God. Deciding on a day-to-day basis what they want to share with their neighbor and who they want to be a point to be responsible for sharing with their neighbor. So they create a social safety net that operates by faith, hope, and charity. That's what the kingdom of God is. is and it binds the people together spiritually, emotionally, and in a way, economically. But you have control over that economic sharing because you, you're not taxed. The government is supported by free will offerings. Is, is the church a government? Is it a civil government? Cause I was, uh, was in the Facebook exchange. I saw that one of the people who commented was Ted Wyland, who's been around for a long time and has a lot of kingdom tracks in his own life. But he is, um, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't get some of the essentials of the kingdom. Because the, the church was a group. It, it was a body that was operating by faith, hope, and charity. And the people were sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Not a part of a corporate body, but in free assembly. And you have the right to, to freely assemble. You have the right to practice the religion of your choice. But religion, 200 years ago when they made those rules for the Constitution, religion was the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. It was pure religion is how you take care of the needy of your society, unspotted by the world. So, unless Ted is creating a system based on the tens, hundreds, and thousands that is taking care of all the social welfare for the people in their congregation, if that is not their goal, then their goal is not the goal of Christ. Because that's what Christ was teaching the people. That's what they were going to have to do in Pentecost. That's what they had to do back in the Exodus. Suddenly, they they not only got to go, they had to go. They were kicked out of Egypt. Now they were going to have to go, not just with the strong and the healthy, but with the weak and the poor and the old and the infirm and everybody. And they were going to have to take care of one another. And they were going to have to do this in an organized way or they'd be leaving widows and orphans dead along the road all the way to the promised land. They didn't do that. They learned to share. They learned to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity instead of force, fear, and violence. That's the libertarian way. Now, there's a lot of libertarians who don't want to go that way. They just want to be free, have free sex, you know, free love, you know, free this, free that. But, you know, that, that, that's stupid. 
uh, there is certain responsibilities that are inherent in nature. You know, you, 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 if you're, society is born in the family. You, you want the family to stay together. You want husband and wife working as a team. That you want them raising, I mean, it's, it's so obvious if you understand anything about history that if the family unit does not stay together, the children that come out of that family union are often suffer immensely and head down, you know, towards uh, becoming criminals and, and, uh, or democratic socialists, <laughs> which is just a, you know, it's the coward's criminal. Being a different, you know, I I don't want to steal. I want the government to steal for me and then give me benefits. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what democratic socialism is the acceptable way of robbing your neighbor and taking a bite out of your neighbor. So anyway, Ted goes on and says that uh, the that Romans thirteen isn't about civil government. It is. It's just a different kind of civil government. It's where every man. And women are in a family, and those families come together in free assemblies, but they carry out the job of civil government through free will offerings. And if they have a, a economic dispute or, you know, some sort of legal dispute amongst them, you know, where somebody has infringed upon the property rights of somebody else, they can sit down in those tens, hundreds of thousands and decide the case. And they even have an appeals court system, which is through the, the ministers. But those ministers, they they don't prosecute people, but they will oversee and say, you know, you guys aren't really being fair here. And they publish it. They make it public to everybody else. And then you just have to take a look at whether or not you were fair in your decision. And if you weren't, then all the other people... If they're doing what Christ said, which is attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. So you tell me that the government of God is not a civil government. When Christ condemned the Pharisees for not attending to law, judgment, mercy, and faith. That's the job of civil government. It's just that in God's civil government, the state is in the hands of the individual. Which is what libertarians want. They're talking about the, this individual, this individual freedom. Well, Christ gives you that individual freedom, but in order to operate as a government, some men have to be willing to lay down some of their liberty so that others may be free. Isn't that what Christ did? He came to sacrifice himself so that you may be free, souls under God, so that you might be saved to be free souls under God. Living according to the righteousness of God. Because if you don't want to live according to righteousness, your society will crumble and, and, and be devoured and destroyed. That's just the way it is. I can't do anything about it. You jump off the cliff, you're going to hit the bottom. That's where you're headed. So, the reality is, is that God's government is a civil government, but it's not a centralized civil government. It's every man is returned to his family and every man is returned to his possession. The ministers take on a role where they own all things in common, but you're not going to tie it to them unless they're actually providing pure religious services to the people. And religious services, again, is not tickling your ears. 
It's taking care of the needy of your society. The widows, the orphans, uh, the injured, the, the infirm. You know, a, a father falls off a ladder and breaks his back and he can't work. Now he can't support his family. He's going to need help. Now maybe he can learn a job, you know. I mean, if you see these amputees, they're doing really great. So, what could he do? Maybe he'd go into politics. <laughs> you say, oh no, you don't want to go into politics. You don't want to go into government. You're in bondage. And this was part of the Facebook uh, discussion. Is that... uh People don't understand that uh, you're in bondage. You've been entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Your children are merchandise. They're collateral. They're, you, they're, they're surety for debt. You're surety for debt. You're merchandise. You're human resources. You want to change that? You have to change the way you think. That's called repentance. Changing the way you think is, that's what, that is the definition of the word repentance. Turning around and going the other way. What way do we want to go? We want to go Christ's way. Somebody, like I said, called this morning from, seemed to be from Illinois. Okay, so what is Christ's way? Christ, I mean, he said it. He explained it. That you had to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, does that mean sit in the pew and love the guy across the way or love somebody in Ethiopia or actually do something? You know, I don't want to send money to, you know, I, I just do Ethiopia in there. I mean, any foreign country. I don't want to send money out there. I will send information about the way that Christ said to organize your people. And if you, if the people in Ethiopia or South America organizing the tens, hundreds, and thousands and link themselves through a network, you know, because the kingdom of heaven is like a net of tens, hundreds, and thousands, then through that network, we can help those people in the other countries. You know, we've we've now published some things in South Africa, and we have some people down there. They But they have to organize themselves. They have to care enough about their fellow man to sit down in those tens, hundreds, and thousands with the intention of becoming a daily ministration operating by faith, hope, and charity instead of force, fear, and violence. And, and so you don't need to be talking about libertarianism. You need to live it. You need to be, set your neighbor, if you want to be free, you have to set your neighbor free. And the best way to set your neighbor free is stop being dependent upon those people who would bring them into bondage. Promise them liberty but bring them into bondage. How do they bring them into bondage? Just sign here. You're to make no covenants with them. And people say, oh, well, I have no contract. I've looked through my file drawers and I don't see. I bet you I can look through your wallet and find covenants. <laughs> I don't have to go to your file drawer. I can just look through your wallet. And I've actually seen people in court, you know, where they, they ask, they just ask two or three questions and then the court established jurisdiction. And they didn't even know it. But it's right there. But you have this blind way of looking at reality. Because you don't understand history. You don't understand what Jesus meant when he said, Call no man on earth father. He says you're not to be like the benefactors who exercise the men who call themselves benefactors. They're not really benefactors because they don't really give you anything that they have. They only give you what they take away from others. So it's, it's absolutely essential that you start looking at the whole truth. And, and, and start rightly dividing what is actually going on as so that you can, 
you know, see that what is moral and what is not moral. You have to become proactive in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So how is it righteous to sit there and not take care of the needy of your society? And then we can ask the question, where does your society start and where does it stop? You know, who do you take care of and who don't you take care of? Everybody wants to come out, but actually they they still will collect a check <laughs> from the system. The fact is you're in the system. Now, I'm not advocating that people run for political office or become a police officer or become an attorney, but you you have, I'm advocating that you get together in your families and take care of one another and that you freely assemble in these free assemblies to take care of one another. And you start actually turning around your thinking and realize that if I want to be free, I have to set my neighbor free. And one of the ways to set your neighbor free is to actually be there for him when he does need real help, which almost everybody occasionally does need real help. I mean, you don't need to help the people who won't work, but occasionally somebody can't work and you need to help them. And in that process of trying to find ways in which you actually strengthen the poor and help the poor and the needy of your society, you will be made stronger. Because what you're doing in that process of helping them is you're doing what Christ came to do and show you how to do, which is you're laying down your life. You don't have to get hung on the cross, but you may have to donate something to help somebody. But you want to, you don't want to donate to somebody you don't know and don't know what he's doing with it. You can send it away to the United Way or to this charitable group or that charitable group, but you don't know where that money goes. You know, like I said, I, well, actually, I heard, you know, that the head of the Red Cross is now making like $600,000 a year if you count benefits. Uh, what in the world? Why does anybody have to make $600,000 a year? Are they really working all that hard? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, how much waste is going on in the Red Cross? And I know there's a lot of people that do hard work on the Red Cross and do a lot of good things. And they, you always need those people in order to do, get your photo ops so that you can get more donations. But the kingdom of God is very local. You know, it's a local congregation of people that are actually saying, you know, I'm going to start caring about my neighbor as much as I care about myself and hope that my neighbor will be there to care about me. Can you imagine having 144,000 people or, you know, 14 million people or 140 million people who are actually doing that, that actually care about their neighbor as much as they care about themselves? I don't want to cripple you and say, oh, no, you have to get rid of all your ID and all this kind of stuff. That's ridiculous. The system will collapse. You're not ready for it. You haven't had your Pentecost yet. You're not ready to be set free. Because <laughs> you're not, you don't even know how to do what free people do. And so you need that process of repentance and seeking the righteousness of God. We'll be right back and explore this even deeper. Well, welcome back. So we've only got a little bit of time and this is huge, broad subject. And so I, you know, I had started a long time ago a page on liberalism and, you know, liberalism being this political philosophy of, or worldview founded on the idea of liberty and equality. 
which on the surface sounds real good, but then how do we get there? That begins to alter things. This liberalism rejected the prevailing social and political norms of hereditary privilege, state religion, absolute monarchy, the divine right of kings, etc. You know, what's state religion? Well, social security is state religion. Welfare is state religion. That's a state religion. That Socialism is a religion you get when you have no religion. Because religion, again, defined just 200 years ago, was the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And uh, religion in the Greek was threskia, which has to do with what you do. And pure religion was what you do had to be taking care of the needy of your society, unspotted by the world. And the word world there is a constitutional order or system of government. In other words... You took care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. That's what pure religion is. And liberalism is should be for that because that's all about free choice, individual choice. But in order to do this on a grand scale, you have to create some kind of free network where those choices can affect more than the person right next to you. Otherwise, you know, people are going to get lost and... and and then, you know, like, we, we talked a great deal during the time where they had the fire down there in Paradise, California, where they were just overwhelmed with so much destruction, they needed help from outside of their community. So, and this, of course, when Jerusalem fell under the destruction of Titus, uh, Christians poured out of the city during his, uh, while well, he surrounded them on all sides, and they poured out of the city and they had a place to go because they had a network that reached all over the Roman Empire all the way to Ireland and and beyond. And so they had a place to go because they had this this ten hundred hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, etc. just kept this gigantic network. And that's what you're gonna need before you come out of her, my people, that you be partakers of the sin. First thing you have to do is start stop sinning. Which is you have to start caring about other people's rights. Somebody said you can't have property without the state. Which is, you know, that's narrow-minded, ridiculous thinking. All you need to have property rights is has a neighbor who cares about your property rights as much as he cares about his own. You agree on a boundary. You agree on interaction with each other. And now if a third guy comes along and tries to take away your neighbor's property rights, you come to his aid. And you hope that he comes to your aid. You can swear allegiance that you will come to his aid, but then you're making covenants with the people where you go. And you don't want to do that. You want it based on... And really, ultimately, this is when you have your band of brothers. They're, they're, they're not... Nobody in, in the band of brothers down in the foxhole was sitting there reading the Constitution or reading the uh, U.S. codes every day to know whether or not they were going to defend their buddy. They, they were a band of brothers, and that's, that's the strong band. The ties that bind in, in a righteous way is the, is through love and honor of one another and respect for one another. And we talk about that all the time. And so you want to create a society, a structure of society that cultivates that brotherly love. And that's only going to come if you cultivate free choice. So it's only going to come in what you would call classical liberalism. But you can get off the path really quick if you don't understand all the nuances of that. 
You know, one of the things that, uh, and, and I quote it here because it's on the, our page on liberalism, virtually all major religions from Hinduism, Judaism, Buddhism, to Christianity, even Hinduism and Sikhism, I'm, I just noticed that they don't mention Muslims in this list. I didn't write it. They're in opposition to desiring anything that belongs to another. Just to desire anything that, that the, is the product of the life of others. And certainly to conspire to scheme to obtain what is the rightful property of others is a primal betrayal of the moral conscience and degrades the fabric of society and the individual, if not the rights of that individual. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, anything that is thy neighbor's. Socialism is based on the covetous practice of taking away from your neighbor. And like the one kid was saying, he says, well, so how, how are you going to support all these socialist programs? It's just, they, they will figure it out. They'll find a way. They? Who's they? It's the men you give power to figure it out. You know, the slothful shall be under tribute. That's just the way it go. You cannot be slothful and think you will remain free. So what do you have to be diligent in? Well, you have to take care of your own family. You have to take care of, you know, your own business, your own life, your own land, whatever it is. You have to take care of that. But you also have to care about your neighbor's rights to his property as much as you care about your own. You don't need the state. You need to be able to come together. And this goes back to the basics of Abraham. Abraham comes out of Ur, then comes out, you know, with Terah, and then comes out of Haran, which is a city-state that uh, Terah was creating, and named after his dead son from Haran, uh, from uh, Ur. And he actually leaves there several times and finally came out with many souls. So he was teaching something, preaching something, talking about something, where many people followed him out into the wilderness and they became these Hebrew wanderers. What was he doing? He was setting up altars with the people round about him. So, they were piling up stones and burning up sheep. See, if you think that, you're already at a disadvantage. You're not going to understand Christianity because you don't understand Judaism. You don't understand Hebrewism. They weren't piling up rocks and burning up sheep. Nobody, nobody is going to say, oh, Abraham needs help. So we're going to leave everything and run over and help Abraham, risking our lives, risking being slit open and killed by an army who just came in and took one city. Nobody's going to run and do that because we all burn up sheep together. That's not what those altars were. Those altars were a system just like the first century church that was rightly dividing the bread from house to house. What was the bread that they were dividing? Well, whatever you offered. And you offered them to what? The living stones of those living altars. And they rightly divided them from house to house. They didn't need any central temple. They were taking care of one another. They were creating, those altars were the social safety net of a society that operated by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. And even outnumbered, outmanned, outarmed, they were able to destroy the armies, the five king armies that came in and took Sodom and Gomorrah and other city-states. They were able to destroy them in one night. 
because they had a certain power in them that came from that daily practice of pure religion. That's what Abraham was setting up, is a network of pure religion that bound the people together by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, contracts, oaths, allegiance, all that stuff. Now, nobody's explaining this very basic element of a free society to you. You know, the the, the uh, left liberals, they're still coveting their neighbor's goods. They're, they're not going to find freedom. The, whatever they call liberalism isn't going to work out for them. So we have things like social liberalism, which is a political ideology that believes individual liberty requires a level of social justice. You know, the original guy using the word social justice, you go back, he was talking about charity. Social justice through charity. Not through force. I mean, it's it, again, it's like the people who say, I'm an anarchist, I'm going to break your windows if you don't do things the way I want you to do them. That's an anarchist. That's not an anarchist. He just he just wants to be the ruler. And the amazing thing, this has been very popular in South America. You know, a pervasive idea in South America is socialism. And now that's why they want all these immigrants coming into the country because they're they can't find Americans to vote for them. So they're bringing they they want there, there's a bill right up in front of in Oregon Congress right now to give illegal aliens the right to vote. Legal aliens don't even have the right to... Green card aliens don't have the right to vote. They want to give illegal aliens the right to vote. And, I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff that's going on now. I mean, but it's coming. And the light at the end of the tunnel is a freight train. You need to repent. You need to think a different way. That's what repentance is. You need to sit down in the tens, hundreds of thousands and start taking care of one another. Because it's... You can't... You're not going to turn this around with a vote. You can go get into political office and, and you can still do that. But that is not your salvation. Your, your salvation is, is Christ. And you don't have Christ if you're not willing to do what Christ said. Certainly, if you're not willing to do what Christ commanded, because he didn't make a lot of commands. He said, you know, he, he, and he didn't command the people. He commanded his apostles. That you have to require that the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands before they get any loaves and fishes, before they get sanctuary. I mean, there's so many things going on behind the scenes that I'm not going to tell you on the radio. Because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. If you're not going to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, I can't give you certain things. I can't tell you certain things. Because I'm not giving away the game plan. I mean, the game plan you need to know, <laughs> you know, you that we're sharing with you. So, you know, so you got the social liberalism accepts the idea that individuals require a level of ju- a social justice and gives the power to government to resolve problems in society uh, like the needs of the elderly, the poor, the individual health care, education, uh, at all levels through the wealth and distribution uh, of society. That is Nimrod. That, that's a Pandora's box. That That is going to turn you, degenerate the people. We have lots of live links that will show you 
<laughs> how that's repeated over and over again in, in in history. So social liberalism is is crazy, and it will lead to Karl Marx, uh, you know, is totalitarian communism, which a lot of people say, well, communism, what's wrong with that? Well, they're idiots. They don't know. Uh, but and I can I'm not supposed to be telling them they're idiots, but they're wrong. Karl Marx was an advocate of d- democracy because he said democracy is a road to socialism, and of course socialism is a road to communism. And communism has killed millions upon millions of people. And they say, oh, well, that wasn't real communism. Well, that's what real communism leads to, because power corrupts. And if you're going to give power to a handful of individuals, oh, but we're talking democracy. No, it doesn't work. Everybody knows democracy fails throughout history, but you haven't been taught history, so you don't know what it is. So, anyway, classical liberalism is a political ideology and a branch of liberalism which advocates civil liberties under the rule of law and emphasizes economic freedom found in economic liberalism, which is also called free market capitalism. Capitalism is not a moral, it's not immoral. It's not a moral institution. It's not a political institution. It's just you have a right to the nuts you gather. That That's, you know, you have a right to your family. You have a right to what you create. That's all capitalism is. You have to bring in the righteous element somewhere else. And this is why Christ was an anarchist, but he also was a capitalist. You know, he wasn't, for, again, he wasn't the kind of anarchist that wants to tear down Caesar. He's he's not trying to undo where what other people want to create. They want to create Caesar's fine. That's okay. They can do that. But he was trying to show you a way in which God will be on your side. And, and men like John Locke and Thomas Jefferson and uh, Bastiat uh, and... Uh, Oh, I was trying to think of David uh, Ricardo and a lot of these other people, even Adam Smith. They all have elements of this in some of the things they talk about, but they also, in almost every case, they stray at times from the kingdom. Or they just don't go down all the avenues that are available to us if we actually... But Christ did have the answer. The problem is, is most people, what they understand about Christ is filtered through the modern church, which has led everybody back into the bondage of Egypt and, and got them again entangled in the elements of the world and where they have become human resources, merchandise, and curse their children because you've been slothful in the ways of the kingdom. Uh, you have to find out what Christ was really saying and do that. Let's try that. <laughs> So anyway, uh, we're not going to be able to go through all this, but we have lots of links at preparingyou.com. But the, probably the most important is that you need to join the network, which is just an email network to start with. But the purpose of the email network is to help you form the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And yeah, I'm not going to probably have a group in your your hometown or even in your city. But if you you see value in what we're saying, you need to start to join any group, no matter how far away everybody is. And as we bring more people to the network, then you start forming local groups. In the meantime, we'll share with you this information. You have to change your thinking. That's going to 
be up to you to allow God to change your thinking and realize that if you're not going to live by faith, hope, and charity, you're not going to be free. And, and we're overcoming with rational arguments many of the, the wrong ideas that have bound the people. But it's not going to do you any good until you begin to actually walk the walk and care about others. Now, that's a process. You know, uh, how you do that, when you do that, you need to be guided by the Holy Spirit. We're not going to tell you how fast to go, what to learn. But if you're not sitting down, this is time to learn to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because in that process, you're going to have to learn how to forgive one another. You're going to have, you know, Christ sat down with publicans. He sat down with, you know, which are politicians and and uh, centurions and, and all these guys who were in a system that was free bread and circuses. Forced offerings. The Corbin of the Pharisees. They were all in that system. He appointed his own Sanhedrin that was separate from that other Sanhedrin. He didn't tear down that Sanhedrin because he know it will self-destruct eventually itself. But what he tried to do is all those willing, just like, you know, wanted to go the way of the Lord, gather together, sit down together, start caring about one another, learn what that means, learn what it means to be righteous in your relationships with others. We, we aren't creating churches that make you feel good. We're, we're showing you how to face the reality of our error so that we can get better. And let Christ in us so that we get better. That's why you're going to have to learn how to forgive and how to give and when to give and when not to give and to whom to give. We're giving you more and more choices. And some people say, well, it's too much. I, I just want you to fix it. That's being slothful. Slothful shall be under tribute. I, there's no way anybody can fix it for you. You have to... Allow God to fix you. And he's laid out tasks in order to do that. And you have to be diligent. You have to persevere. None of this, well, I sat down and I didn't like what he said, so I left. Well, then you're out by your own choice. You have to make a commitment. I mean, if you have children, if you get married... And all of a sudden your wife does something you don't like or your husband does something you don't like. You don't get to say, well, I don't like what they're doing so I'm just going to leave the marriage and I'll take the kids with me or she can have the kids. I'm just going to go do my own thing or, you know, I'm going to be a free man in Christ, you know. No. You have to meet your obligations if you want God to meet his obligations to you. God really doesn't have any obligations to you. He doesn't owe you anything, and he's never going to owe you anything. If you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved by grace. But if you won't, like the prodigal son, admit, I did wrong, I was stupid, i got to go back to my father's house and be a servant in my father's house. If you're not willing to make that choice. So what does God's house look like? It looks like the tens, hundreds, and thousands sitting down in free assemblies, caring about one another as much as they care about themselves. That's that's what God's house looks like. His altars of stone are living men who come together in one accord to rightly divide the bread from house to house. 
They don't have no bread lest you give it to them. It's not just going to appear out of thin air. It's going to appear out of your righteousness. If you have no righteousness, then don't figure out anything showing up. But if you're not willing to sit down together in that pattern laid out by Christ and the apostles and the early church and early Israel and even in the days of Abraham, if you're not willing to do that, then peace on your house. <laughs> what can I do for you? And so anyway, if as you sit down and as you start to gather, I, I mean, I see forces moving all the time now. Uh, but I'd like to see a little bit more noise out there in the kingdom, a little bit more gathering together. And of course, you know, God is is there. But is God in your heart that's making you want to gather as he gathered? You know, one of the big dangers is that we have this idea of creating lists and doctrines and dogmas. And if if they're not doing this, then, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. But the reality is you're, you're in the boat of the state. You're in the system of the world. You have to, and maybe you think God says, you know, he wants me to be a police officer. Well, then go be a police officer. He may change his mind, you know, right up to the last. You know, you're about ready to take your final test and you pass everything. And now you have to take your oath to be a police officer. And he says, no, I want you to do something else now. And you have to be ready and willing to do that. But. Don't let other people and don't you try to dictate to other people what they ought to do and what they shouldn't do. If they want to talk to you about it, okay. But that has to be their choice. If you're not going to let them have their choice, then you're not going to, you're going to end up without choice yourself. You're going to end up having to eat at the table of the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. You will depend upon them for your daily bread. Because you weren't willing to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and become the bread of life for your neighbor. That, that's, that's, it comes down to you. That's part of that setting people free. Is that you have to let them make their own mistakes. And, you know, there's times when you have to speak up and you say, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> But you have to be very careful of manipulating their decisions. And we have a tendency to do that. Of trying to impose. We, we get this list of what we think is moral and we try to impose that on other people. What is moral is, is really very simple. Love thy neighbor as thyself and love God. Well, what is God? God is the creator of life. He is the giver of life. He is also the giver of choice. He allows us to make choices. We have to allow others to make choices. But I've also given you here a glimpse of the kingdom, what it looks like. You know, if you go to our uh, liberalism page at preparingyou.com, down at the bottom, we have a, a bunch of links. Goats and sheep, shepherds, free keys, uh, why socialism? Why not socialism? Section 666, Mark of the Beast, uh, Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? 
So, anyway, all these articles, if you start going through them, but really the most important thing is to gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, like Christ commanded, and start practicing faith, hope, and charity in real ways that make a difference. And until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.